Okay, good morning. I'm going to be going to my 20th New Year's conference this year, so I'm pretty excited. It really is an impactful four days where we just get away from the hustle and bustle of campus life, and we just lock in on who God is and what is the gospel, and we always see God's spirit show up in big ways. So please consider attending, but also donating to that experience. It really is life-changing. So uh, who, who loves this time of year? Am I the only one? Love this time of year. Fall is coming. The leaves are changing. The leaves are falling. We got football every night, just about. Tonight, you know, we're going we're gonna to get the fire pit going. It's the perfect time to make some s'mores. I love how the fall is coming in and we're moving out of the summer. And there's another season that's coming. Tell me if you're equally as excited. Okay, it's election season coming up. Anybody fired up for that one? Okay, a few of you. A few uh, hardcore, you know, uh, you know, uh, political people <laughs> in the room. I got stuck right there. But, you know, there, there's, there's also some signs of uh, the political season changing. You start getting mailers in your mailbox. Uh, you know, you start seeing more yard signs, more bumper stickers on the cars. And then you start, you know, just flipping uh, to the TV, watching games. And it seems like every commercial, every ad is an attack ad, right? They're mudslinging, they're going back and forth. Do you guys remember this a couple years ago? I remember trying to watch football and it seemed like every commercial break was filled with one party or the other. I mean, the most memorable one to me was the race between Warnock and Herschel Walker. Y'all remember this one? And by the very end of it, on election day, I was so confused, I didn't know what was going on. And it almost seemed like I got two choices. And one guy's impersonating a sheriff and the other guy potentially tried to drive over his wife. It's like, who do I choose? Okay? Because there's these incessant commercials trying to take the other person down. If you're brand new to Georgia, welcome. Okay, it's coming. So this is where the story in Daniel picks up. There's actually a regime change. Okay, there's a new party that's come to town. If you remember last week, Andrew preached about how Nebuchadnezzar, he actually died. He's taken out. And there's a new king in town, and his name is Darius, and he's part of the Persian party or the Persian kingdom. And just like any time a new politician or ruler or king comes into power, he he establishes his own cabinet. He brings in his own VPs. And so at this point, we fast forward to the point where Daniel is almost 90 years old, okay? He's 90. He's old, okay? He's collecting social security, and he gets promoted to prime minister. You think our, our politicians are old? Okay, Daniel, he's still sharp, he's still with it, but he gets promoted to be really second or third in the entire kingdom. And here's what we come to find out, all right? If there's one sort of part of our society, we would say absolute corruption, okay? We got to drain the swamp, okay? Total inconsistency. We talk about politics. We talk about D.C. And here's what's amazing, okay? Even in a pagan kingdom, even in the Persian world, David, for over 70 years of his life, remains totally incorruptible. He's working with corrupt politicians, and he remains totally incorruptible. And this is what we're going to discuss this morning. How do I stay faithful to God in a secular workforce? How how do I stay, you know, faithful to Scripture in, in, in a country that seems like it's losing his mind? I work in a toxic culture. I work for a secular organization How do I stay faithful to the God of the Bible? And Daniel's going to be our example. So we're going to pick up in Daniel 6. We've got a lot of reading to do. I'm going to break it up into three big chunks. So read with me. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 9. It says this. 
It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Those are almost like senators or governors to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give accounts so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all, over, all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set over him the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they couldn't find any ground for complaint or fault because he was faithful. and No error or fault was within him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so it can't be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which can't be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So point number one is this. Okay, if you want to work and live and stay faithful in a pagan world, it starts with just doing excellent work. Starts with doing excellent work. Now, we all have different vocations, careers. Some of you, you know, work in your home. Some of you work in an office. But here's what we see in verse 2, that Darius is skeptical of his subordinates. He says this in verse 2, I don't want to suffer any loss. And here's what he thinks, okay, is that these men are stealing from me. And it might be because they're corrupt or taking bribes or just doing mediocre work. But the reason why he promotes Daniel is because he wants to clean it up. And these men respond with jealousy. In verse 7, it says they all, they all gathered a plot. And, and you see this principle all throughout Scripture that oftentimes when God promotes you, when God elevates you, when God gives you more responsibility, other people are going to just try to bring you down. Oftentimes, they're motivated by jealousy. And so these men, they get together, probably meeting in some sort of back room, and, and they're trying to find fault. They're trying to find error. They're like, what's the mud that we're going to sling at Daniel? And keep in mind, Daniel has been working in government from the age of 14 until 90. Okay, that's over 70 years of public service. And they're able to find what? Absolutely nothing. No errors and no faults. Daniel, in their eyes, is incorruptible. And his only weakness, okay, his only shortcoming is that he is committed to the laws of God. Wouldn't that be a breath of fresh air to have a politician like that? Daniel is committed to daily prayer. That's his only weakness. We're going to talk about this in just a moment. But Daniel embodies 1 Thessalonians 5. He prays without ceasing. It says right here in verse 3 that there was an excellent spirit within him. And this excellent spirit essentially means two things. That when Daniel went about his work, first and foremost, he was committed to God's word. He obeys God's commands and everything. But on top of that, don't miss this, really basic point, Daniel does really good work. He's a good employee. He, he, he is a, he's good for the workplace culture. 
And this is a really important point in today's day and age because, did you know this? Employee engagement in the American workforce is at an all-time low. Have you ever heard this phrase before? Quiet quitting. It's like a new trend that's going on. But quiet quitting is this. It's when employees just do the bare minimum. Okay? Nothing extra. No extra enthusiasm. No extra service. No going above and beyond. Embracing the extra mile. Quiet quitting... Okay, is just doing bare minimum, just the mediocre, so I don't get fired. And the latest Gallup poll would say this, is that 50% of the American workforce is embracing quiet quitting. So, if you want to stand out, you want to be faithful to God, start with your workplace. Just be diligent, be faithful, have a great attitude, be willing to serve, go the extra mile, be punctual, meet deadlines. The Old Testament says this, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart. Do it with all your might. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, Ben, that's easy for you to say. You know, it's like Campus Outreach Sunday. I bet you got a pretty good boss, and I do. But you don't know my boss. Or you don't know what my coach is like or my company. It's a toxic culture. And I would just remind you of this. Paul instructs the, the, the church in Colossians that we're called to work heartily for the Lord and not for men. And your earthly boss might be inconsistent, it might be rude, it might have you know, bad coffee breath, you know, and always be on you about meeting this deadline. But ultimately, our true boss, our true CEO, our lead supervisor is the King Jesus. And so we look, work heartily for him, we work heartily for the Lord. Now here's what I want you to focus on. Okay, this command that Darius gives. Let, let's get really specific. Let's examine this command because it's interesting. Uh, un, unlike previous stories in Daniel, Darius does not command people to bow down and worship him. He does not command idolatry. Anybody to bow down to a statu statue. And then on top of this, he doesn't forbid prayer. Think about it. You can pray silently. You can pray quietly. The only thing that Darius is forbidding is audible prayer, out loud prayer. But then on top of that, is this a permanent ban? Is it a lifetime ban? Is it even for a year or a decade? Basically what Darius is forbidding is he's saying for 30 days, for one month, nobody in my kingdom can pray out loud. Did you get that? So I want you to use your imagination just for a moment but think about your workplace, or maybe think about your suburb, or your neighborhood, or your city. What if the powers that be made the same command? They said to you, if you're going to work here, if you're going to live here, if you're going to be a part of this organization for 30 days, no audible prayer meetings. My question is, how would you respond? I actually, you know, thought about this for myself. I said, you know, what if... You know, the VPs and the provost and the powers that be at West Georgia said no campus outreach prayer meetings, okay? You can do everything else, but you can't pray out loud for 30, for 30 days. I might type up some sort of email, some sort of memo, and I'd say to Joel and his team, hey, guys, just be discreet. Maybe we can just take a month off from our prayers meetings. Or can we just pray silently? Can we go on prayer walks and not meet? Can we just lay low for 30 days? Now we're getting to it. This is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. This is like greatest hits of Daniel. But have you ever considered this? We sometimes brush over this point. What put Daniel in the lion's den? 
We'll put him, you know, you know in a situation where, we, where he was about to risk his life. Daniel refused to violate 1 Thessalonians 5. He basically said, I am not going to stop praying. I refuse to cease praying. And put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Look at this situation from his perspective. His life hangs in the balance, but also he's about to be promoted. He'll have more influence, an opportunity to really reshape the kingdom for God and his glory. All he has to do, the only thing he has to do is just pray quietly or close his windows or go on a prayer walk and pray under his breath. But you see how Daniel responds? He says, you can take my life before you take my prayer. So here's my question for you. Would a one-month prayer ban make any difference in your life? So let's get to this. What is the power of this prayer? What was so significant, so meaningful? What caused Daniel to say, take my life before take my prayer? It's his commitment to unceasing prayer. Let's pick up in verse 10. Y'all read with me. It says this. When Daniel knew that the document has been signed... He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day. He prayed and he gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and they found Daniel making petition and his plea before God. They came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction? That anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and he said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which can't be revoked. Then they answered and said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed. But he makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that this is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Did you see this? Okay, Daniel was committed not to, you know, momentary prayer, praying before meals, a quick little prayer before he goes to bed, okay? 1 Thessalonians 5 says, this is the will of God that we pray without ceasing. So we're going to talk about what does it look like to have a habit or lifestyle of prayer. Now before we get to that, we've got to think first and foremost, what holds us back from prayer? What, what prevents a lifestyle of prayer? What, what inhibits a prayerful mindset? Well, for most of us, we just move too fast through life that we don't stop, we don't pause to pray. Pretty basic advice, but most of us just need to slow down. Uh, Corey Tim Boone has a famous saying, she says this, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And this is the great danger for Americans, but in particular our church. Not that we would renounce our faith or become apostates or embrace atheism or secularism. It's just this, that in the modern world we become so distracted so rushed, so preoccupied that we settle for like a mediocre version of a spirit-filled life. That as we're rushing from one task to the next, as we're staring at our phone and then trying to have a conversation, 
as we give people partial attention, as we're trying to multitask, is that we lose our ability to really focus and come into the presence of God. Have you ever thought about this? Okay. What, what's the effect of sin? Sin separates. Sin always divides. It separates us from others, but also from God. Well, what's the effect of busyness and speed and rushing through life? It what? It separates. It separates us from our loved ones and most importantly from God. What if the same way we try to put to death and mortify sin and temptation, we try to eliminate distraction and speed from our life? Because both of these things prevent deep, meaningful connection to God. And isn't this just the air we breathe as Americans? I mean, more often than not, when you walked into church, you said, how you doing? Okay? And if you're polite and southern, you always say, what, I'm good? Or, I'm what? I'm busy. Things are busy. Life is busy. Sports are busy. School is busy. And for some of us, it's we just fill our lives with emails, and text messages, and appointments, and assignments, and meetings, and clubs. For others, it's just sort of this comfort of Netflix, and Instagram, and trivial things. I did a little uh, experiment on campus on Friday. I was preparing for this sermon. And I just said, you know, all day I'm going to pay attention, okay, to students as they're walking on campus, as they're hanging out in Starbucks, and I'm going to just see what's going on. And here's what I saw. It's like every moment was filled with a screen. I mean, you could almost like run into a college student on campus because as they're walking, they're just staring at their phone. And if they have a brief moment, you know, waiting for their, you know, vanilla chai latte, they're scrolling on their phone. Dare I say it, but you walk into the bathroom, okay, whether it's number one or number two, it's filled with the phone, okay? Guys have figured out a way to do that. And so it's like every moment is filled with some content, reading a blog, listening to a podcast, scrolling through pictures. We become so distracted that the voice of God just gets crowded out. For many of us, we just need to slow down, introduce silence into our life, embrace boredom so we can hear the voice of God. And here's what this requires us to do. So often when we make decisions, we think about what's right and what's wrong. And what's God's law and I need to keep it and I don't want to break it. Well, maybe a better question is this. As you go through life and make decisions and use your time and evaluate your days, are you embracing things that open you up to the Spirit or block you from the Spirit? Are you building habits that help you know Jesus and deepen your relationship or actually hinder your connection with God? See, this is really what prayer is all about. Prayer is not primarily about getting God to do things for me. The real goal of prayer is this, is just going through life in a relationship with him. So you can think about it this way. we got 86,400 seconds each and every day. What does it really mean to pray without ceasing? Why did Daniel pray three times a day? Because he's trying to live as many of those moments, as many of those seconds, in the very presence and face of God. Now let's do a little history right here, because believe it or not, this is actually, Daniel is part of a long line, okay, of biblical characters who embraced a lifestyle of prayer. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, you, you see, let's go to the next one. You see this in Psalm 119, this is the psalmist. He says this, I rise before dawn, I cry for help, he's praying. 
My eyes are awake before the watches of the night. Then he says, seven times a day, I praise you. Now he's not saying a literal seven. Seven is a symbolic number. We got seven days in the week. It's a number that represents wholeness and completion. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying all day, the whole 24 hours, I'm prayerful. I'm mindful of God. If you study the early church in the book of Acts, they prayed three times a day. At 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. You might be thinking to yourself, well, what about Jesus? Did Jesus pray a lot? Did he arrange his day for the presence of God? What says this about Christ? That he would often withdraw to a desolate place. It was his habit. It's what he would do consistently. I don't know if you've had the same experience. Anybody got a kid who just like disappears throughout the day? You're like, where is he? Jake is that kid in our family. So oftentimes we'll be in the house and Leah will say, have you seen Jake? Have you heard Jake? I say, no, it's been an hour. But we always know whenever Jake goes missing, he's one of two places. He's either, he, oop, he's either at the creek, okay, mixing it up, you know, with the rocks and the little fish, or he's at the neighbor's house. They're playing football or soccer. But we know naturally when he disappears, that's where he goes. Would you know the disciples knew the same thing about Jesus? Jesus would disappear. He would get off the grid. He would just disappear, and they would always go to the same place because whenever they couldn't find Jesus, he was at the desolate place. He would go to the wilderness. He would go to the mountain every day, even to pray all night. You might be thinking to yourself, well, Ben, this doesn't seem authentic. And isn't prayer supposed to be authentic and spontaneous and from the heart? Well, imagine asking Daniel that question. Daniel, do you really need to schedule prayer? Do you have to have a rule that seems a little legalistic? And I would just say this, most things in life come down to a schedule. And most of our life should not be authentic. And Daniel would probably respond this way, hey, this is how I get more joy. This is my secret, it's a privilege, three times a day to come into the presence of God. And I'm willing to die for this. And if I'm gonna stay faithful as a prime minister in a pagan and wicked land, I've gotta pray. And I've got to pray without ceasing. So if it was true for Daniel, could it be that praying without ceasing should be true in our lives? We don't stand a chance in exile unless we pray and pray throughout the day. So let me just bring out a couple other aspects of Daniel's prayer life. Let me just say this. All right, first off, Daniel's prayer life was regular. We've already touched on this. But this is a crisis moment in Daniel's life. You can't build a new habit in a crisis. Daniel prayed three times a day for 70 years. Think of the previous stories that we've discussed about Daniel. Daniel is challenged to eat forbidden food. He responds with what? He prays. Daniel's friends are commanded to bow down to a pagan idol. They respond with what? They pray. Any trouble, any challenge, any adversity, Daniel's habit of prayer remains. Let me just say this, okay? When did Daniel build this habit? He moves to the pagan land when he's 14. So undoubtedly, he built this habit as a teenager. Guys, this should inspire us as we think about our family worship. Okay, parents, are we teaching our children how to pray? How to pray regularly? Not just before meals, not just before bedtime, but to embrace a lifestyle of prayer. And kids, so often we think, I'm going to build my habit later. When I get to high school, when I get to college, when I get married, 
when I get my first job, Daniel developed this habit as a teenager. And this is why we're so motivated to reach college students on campus, because we believe, I know this was true in my life, okay, I learned how to read the Bible and how to pray and how to evangelize as a college student. And by the grace of God, it's become a lifestyle and something that I keep with me each and every day of my life. We're all developing habits. So it's regular. Second, he's non-anxious. We'll look at this in just a moment. But everybody else around Daniel is freaking out. The people who try to take him out, they're like partying. King Darius is up all night. He's stressed. He's worried. Sleep flees from him. And Daniel's about to go down to the pit. He's about to lay down with some lions. And he's able to sleep through the night. Isn't that wild? And so here's what we see. It's almost like Daniel embodies Philippians 4, 6 through 7 in this story. It says this, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and it will guard your mind. Daniel remains completely calm at the, even when he's laying in the pit with the lions. He embodies Philippians 4, 6 through 7 because he embraces prayer. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but isn't this what we want? Deep inner peace, real spiritual and emotional security. And we think we can get it, all right, by, uh, by, by embodying Darius's way. If I can just have all the power, then I'll be at peace. If I can move up the ranks of my company, if I can make a little bit more money, if I can get this promotion, if I can be at the top, then I'll have real peace. Or maybe you think this, if I can just move to a different home, have a little bit more money in the bank account, if I can get a promotion, then I'll have peace. Here's what we see with Darius. Darius has all power and he's living in the palace. And yet sleep or peace escapes him. And yet Daniel is at the bottom of the pit and he's not anxious. There's no worry. There's no distress. Maybe what this story is suggesting is that if you want real peace, you can't find it in the palace. You don't get it through power. You get it through prayer. That's where the peace comes. Number three, did you notice the posture of Daniel? He's praying on his knees. He gets down on his knees. And it's not just the posture of his body. It's also the posture of his heart. He's humble. He's saying, you're the king, I'm not. I'm a servant. But he's also expectant. He's saying, God, you're going to come through. You're going to hear my prayer. Let me just remind you, Daniel was a prime minister. So that means each and every day he's got servants, he's got juniors, he's got subordinates coming down and bowing before him. Do you see the humility of Daniel? He's saying, you're the real king. You're the real leader. You're the ultimate authority. And then number four is this. Daniel's facing the temple. He flings the windows open. He actually directs his body towards the city of Jerusalem. So what's Daniel doing here? He's actually praying for his people. Daniel is engaged in praying for the lost world. Here's what you got to understand. This isn't just some self-centered attempt at, at inner peace. Daniel is thinking about the needs of his people, his city, his king, his kingdom. And the reason why Daniel is facing Jerusalem it's because Jerusalem was symbolic. It was a meaningful city. This was the city of God. It was a symbol of God's kingdom. Because in the very center of Jerusalem, there was a special building called the temple. 
the very center of the temple, there's a special room called the Holy of Holies. And in that special room was the Ark of the Covenant. And here's what people believed is that when you came to the temple, you were coming into the presence of God. The very visible, manifest presence of God. And in that Holy of Holies, that Ark of the Covenant, it was the place of atonement. Because the priest would enter that room, he would sacrifice a lamb, they would confess their sin, and they would receive forgiveness or atonement. So what do we do? There's no temple today. Where do we face? Ben, are you saying i got to figure out where Jerusalem is, like on my Google Maps before I pray? Well, here's what we do today. We don't open our window to the temple. We open the window of our heart to Jesus and his sacrifice. Because brothers and sisters, think about this. When we end our prayers, we pray in whose name? The very name of Jesus. We don't pray in Ben's name or King's Chapel's name or the PCA's name or Campus Outreach's name. We pray in Jesus' name. And here's what we're acknowledging. Just like Daniel, we're facing the temple. Because we're saying what? Jesus, you are the temple. You are the presence of God. You're the living God. And you're not just a building. You're flesh and blood, but you are God. But more than that, Jesus, you're the point of atonement. You provide forgiveness. Through your death, through your sacrifice, you give us atonement. This is what we do when we pray in Jesus' name. So, so far, here's what we've covered. Doing good work. Praying without ceasing. Hopefully that's bringing a little clarity on how we live in exile. But have you ever thought about this? Daniel still, still ends up in the lion's den, doesn't he? He still goes down to the pit. And here's why. This is civil disobedience. Daniel's name means this, God is my judge. And so for the most part, Daniel is an amazing citizen. He's serving the government. He follows the laws of Persia. But there's limits to this obedience, and this is what civil disobedience is. We say God's law comes first. God is my ultimate authority. So if there's ever a moment where our governors, our presidents, you know, whatever politician says we've got to disobey God, we have to respond just like Daniel and say God is my judge. And do you notice this? If you go about doing your job with excellence and you pray without ceasing or obey God's commands, it attracts hostility. There's going to be some level of resistance because darkness hates light. This is sort of the dirty secret of doing good work and following God. It attracts hostility. This is why Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Paul says, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. And let me just say this. If you embrace one or the other, you're going to avoid hostility. So, for example, if you say, when I go to work tomorrow at 9 a.m., I'm going to love God and do mediocre work, okay, no one's going to pay attention to you. Or on the flip side, you say, I'm going to hustle, I'm going to grind, I'm going to move up the ranks, but I'm going to do it with no character and no devotion to Jesus. There's not going to be any persecution. But when you embrace both, a love of God and good work, there will be hostility. There will be a reaction. So how do we endure this? How do we endure the, the persecution? Well, let's see how the story ends. Pick up with me in verse 10. This is Daniel 6, 10 through 15. It says this. When Daniel, oh, wrong passage. Verse 16, there we go. Okay, verse 16. It says this. Then the king commanded, 
And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of the day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. And he came near the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouth. They haven't harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought in and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. So, if we want to endure, if we want to persevere, we've got to remember, number three, the miraculous resurrection. And if you really study this passage, what a lot of commentators will point out is that there are so many parallels between Daniel going into the pit and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let me list out a few. Both Daniel and Jesus were innocent. They were falsely convicted. They were betrayed. Both of them were hated without cause. They were attacked by powerful religious leaders. They were condemned by unjust laws. But neither of them protested or fought back, and they were both thrown to the lion's judgment. Now keep this in mind, lions were symbolic, especially in the ancient Near East, of destruction and disharmony and chaos. These are apex predators, they're the kings of the jungle. And both of these men are thrown into the pit. Both of these men are sealed by a stone. And their enemies at one point thought to themselves, we'll never see these men again. But unlike Daniel, and this is where the the parallels end, unlike Daniel, Jesus was circled and taunted and torn apart by the lines of judgment. And unlike Daniel, no angel stood beside him and shut the mouth of the lion. And yet, when the stones are rolled away, both of these men experience a resurrection. Tim Keller says this, Jesus is the true and better Daniel. Because he was lowered into the lion's den of death, and he emerges early the next morning alive and vindicated by God. And you need to keep this in mind. Anytime we read a miracle in Scripture, it's a foretaste, it's a foreshadowing of what heaven is going to be like. So this is why, you know, Jesus, for his first miracle, he turns water into wine at a wedding feast, and he's saying, heaven is going to be like a wedding reception, full of joy. This is why Jesus will heal the lame. He'll give sight to the blind. 
because there's no mourning or crying or pain in heaven. So what does this miracle say about heaven? What well, says this, the new heavens and new earth will be a place of perfect peace and order and harmony and there will be lions, but in heaven the lions lay down with the lamb because nature will be right again and all creatures will live in peace. Did you pick up on this? When we're first introduced to Darius, he says this, no audible prayer. He forbids prayer meetings, but by the end of the chapter, we see this, he's preaching a sermon. And he's calling every tongue, every tribe, every nation to believe and trust in the living God of Daniel. And even this is a foretaste of the new heavens. Because if you read in Revelation 7, we see every tongue, every tribe, every language, the exact same language, standing before the Lamb and crying out what? Salvation belongs to the Lord, who is seated upon the throne. And this is what Jesus accomplishes with his real resurrection. With the ultimate resurrection, he unites all tongues, all tribes, all people. This is what heaven will be. It's a place of perfect diversity, but also perfect peace. We'll all be gathered around the throne. No more border disputes. No, no more uh, unprovoked attacks. There will be believers from Russia and Ukraine praising Jesus together. From Gaza, from Palestine, from Israel, screaming out, singing, salvation belongs to our God. Perfect peace, perfect diversity, and perfect unity. So this is where we end. Because brothers and sisters, we've all experienced the miraculous resurrection. Because Jesus took our punishment. Jesus went to the pit on our behalf, and that should give us the courage to each and every day be moms and doctors and teachers and coach and just do excellent work, good work in the face of danger. This should also prompt us to be unceasing in our prayer because every time we pray, it's a taste of death and resurrection. Because when we pray, we say this, God, I, I'm, I'm giving up on my self-will. My manipulation, me trying to force this or make it happen, it's death to my will. God, I give it to you. And so often what God does in situations and relationships and problems that feel like death, God brings life. So this is the promise that we receive from, from Daniel in the lion's den. God himself promises to preserve us from the lions that we face today. And with Jesus and his resurrection, we can have the courage to face anything. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this story. How it motivates us, inspires us to be bold and take a stand for Jesus. But Lord, I pray that we would we'd just do good work. We'd be great parents, great employees, great leaders in this community. That we be men and women who aren't so distracted, moving so fast, that we embrace an unhurried lifestyle in your presence. But God, more than this, we want to focus on the resurrection, that it would give us the courage, the power, each and every day, all right, to live for you and your kingdom. So God, help us be men and women, okay, who pray without ceasing and live with the resurrection power of the Spirit. We pray in your name, amen.